although a large crowd is part of what we pray for and what we hope for. But the purpose of the large crowd is not to say we had X amount of people in church. Wow, this was awesome. The, the point is the people. Every number represents a person. A person who came to church. A person who was greeted and welcomed by the people of the church. A person who was either given the opportunity to worship Jesus or see how others worship Jesus. They were to hear a gospel message and then given an opportunity to call on Jesus to save them. When we talk about inviting people or making a big push for people to come, this is always the goal. The goal isn't numbers for the sake of numbers. The goal is numbers because numbers represent people. People who are given the opportunity to hear the gospel and be saved. Our goal is always to see the lost saved, the prodigals restored, the broken hearts healed, um, spiritually blind to see with spiritual eyes, the spiritually dead raised to new life in Christ. And the captives to be set free. This is what we want. And so we, we want to pray. Begin praying now 40 days out for our Easter service. And the first part, what I'm going to do is just give you some specific ways to pray for our Easter service. If you've been here for a time, we've probably seen this handout before. I don't really change it much from year to year. So I will quickly cover this and then we'll pray here. So we pray for opportunities to invite people to church. That's the first one. Right? We, we all know people who don't go to church. We know people who don't know Jesus. And so we pray for the opportunity to arise to invite them. That's one reason we start 40 days out with this. Is to give the most amount of time to have the best chance to invite. Because we don't want to just invite somebody once and leave it there. We want to invite and invite again and again and again. Not so much that we're a pest and they begin to hate us. But enough that they know we care enough that they remember it on Easter Sunday and they will come. Um, pray for courage. Take advantage of every opportunity we're given. It, it can be difficult to invite someone to church. And so when the opportunity arises, pray that there would be courage to say, Hey, do you go to church anywhere? If not, why don't you come be my guest on Easter Sunday at our church? Uh, be specific as much as possible. Write down the names of three to five people you want to invite for Easter Sunday. And then pray for them to come and then pray for their salvation. Now, let me say with this, don't invite people who go to church. Right? If they go to the Nazarene church or the Pentecostal church or the First Baptist church, they're okay. Right? If they're actively involved in going to gospel preaching, Jesus believing churches, leave them alone. We're not seeking to bring people from other Bible believing churches into our church. We want to reach those who do not know Jesus. Pray those we invite will come. If you've invited very many people to church through the years, you know that many people will say, absolutely, I'll be glad to come and I'll sit right beside you. And then on the day they will not come. Uh, they say that so that the conversation will end. So pray that they will not only say they will accept the invitation, but pray they will actually come. Pray those who come will come back. Again, if you've been in church for any Period of time at all you've been to church where there was a big crowd on Easter Sunday and then the next Sunday there was virtually no one there. I've heard it called Easter Sunday is the empty tomb. The Sunday after Easter is the empty pew because of how few people will come back. Many people see Easter Sunday as their year, their time to check in with church and then they're done. And we want more than that. Our desire is to see them come to know Jesus and begin to live for him as their king. Pray there will be more visitors in attendance 
than members. That'd be great. I, I did some checking over through my, my journal. Typically what I do is I write down a number I'm praying to attend. And then I write down after Easter Sunday how many actually attended. So in the time I've been here, unless I'm missing a day, our largest Easter attendance was 154. I think on that Sunday, certainly we had more visitors than members in attendance. We want to pray for that again. We want all of our people who would call this their church home, we for sure want them to be here. Um, But we also want there to be people who don't know Jesus. People who have no church home to come, to feel welcome, to meet Jesus. Pray for visitors to feel welcomed into our church. One of the fears, if you're if you're an introverted kind of person on a, in the natural world, then you know the fear of going into a place where you don't know many people or anyone. The danger of, of whatever. The fear of maybe they're going to call on me. The fear that they're all going to exclude me. That no one's going to like me. Uh, and it does happen. I don't think our church is that way. But I, Kelly and I, in fact, went to a church years ago to preach. I went to preach. And I was the guest speaker for the day. And it was a big crowd, a big church. And during the handshaking time, exactly zero people came and introduced themselves to us, shook our hands, or did anything. It was interesting. And we sat kind of close to the front so they saw us. But it was just an interesting thing. I had never seen that before. I'd always heard that that happens to people in churches. They come and no one welcomes them. No one makes them feel welcome. Um, but... But we don't want that to be the case here. We want them to feel welcomed by those who this is their their church. Pray believers would arrive Easter with a sense of expectation and excitement. Uh, not that our expectation and excitement really changes what God is going to do. But our expectation and excitement, it affects how we worship. It affects our attitude in the service. And people around us can sense that. I mean, you know, if you're around someone, you can tell if they're depressed. You can tell if they're discouraged. You can tell if they're kind of faking and just going through the motions. We don't want visitors to come into our church and sense from us anything other than the fact we believe our God is awesome. We believe our God is great and he is going to do wonderful things in our midst on that day. So pray we would have that mindset on Easter Sunday. Pray unbelievers that as they arrive, the Holy Spirit would already Be working in their hearts, working in their minds, preparing them for what God is going to do in them. That they would come, not just because somebody invited them, but they would have accepted the invitation because they began to realize there is something missing in their life. And as they sit through the service and as we preach Jesus and sing about Jesus, they would realize Jesus is what's missing in their life. Pray we would all be aware of God's presence. In our service, we this is on our weekly prayer list for our church anyway, but we especially want it for Easter Sunday. We know God's everywhere. God is omnipresent. He he is everywhere all the time, no matter what. But there are times where God's presence is, for lack of a better way to say it, tangibly felt. You just know, you feel God's presence. We want we want every Sunday to be like that, but we especially want Easter Sunday to be like that. We want. But we want this awareness of God's presence to cause us to worship Him passionately, to listen to His Word attentively, and to respond to His Word obediently. We want this to cause unbelievers to recognize something is definitely missing in their lives. As they see how we respond to God's presence, we want them to say, I want what they have. We want that longing in their hearts. Pray. All who gather will have ears to hear and hearts to obey. The message 
Easter Sunday, it will be evangelistic. It will end with a plea for people to repent of their sins, believe in Jesus Christ, and serve Him as their King. But just because it's an evangelistic service doesn't mean it doesn't have something for all of us and how we need to, to hear, to heed, and to live differently because of So pray all of us will have ears to hear and hearts to obey. Pray the Holy Spirit will move powerfully in our services without His anointing of my preaching, without His opening people's ears, working in people's hearts. Nothing of any value will happen. Pray the Holy Spirit will guide Scott as he leads the singing and the musicians as they play. Pray the Holy Spirit would anoint me to preach the Word with boldness and clarity. Pray for Word and Spirit to work together to use the Word mightily in people's hearts and minds. Right, that the Holy Spirit would use the Word as a light to dispel darkness in people's minds, that they would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Pray the Holy Spirit would use the Word like a sword to bring people to a place of deep and genuine repentance. Right? I mean, we... We, we want the Holy Spirit to prick people's hearts. We want people to be brought to repentance for their sin, to feel deep conviction and see their need for Jesus. Pray the Holy Spirit would empower the Word to be a hammer, to knock down strongholds that, that keep people from, from God. Right now, all the people who don't come to church and all those that we're going to invite that are in church and don't believe in Jesus and don't live for Him, they have a reason. As to why they don't believe in Jesus. Why they don't live for Jesus. That reason is what 2 Corinthians 10 calls a stronghold. It is a stronghold of their mind. And it is something they have built to protect them against the knowledge of God. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't want to live for Jesus. And so they have this reason to protect them from it. The word is a hammer. And it can smash that stronghold so the thoughts can be brought captive. The obedience of Christ. Pray that will happen. Pray the Holy Spirit would use the word like a fire to purify all of us who hear and heed the word. Pray the Holy Spirit would convict people of, of sin, their sin, their lack of righteousness, and the certainty of their judgment to come. Pray for me as I prepare the message that I would have a proper understanding of whatever passage I'm going to preach. I don't know what the message is going to be yet. Um, I don't think I'm just going to continue in Mark. It will be a one-off message that will be about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But I don't know where it's going to come from yet. So pray whatever passage the Lord lays on my heart, I would understand it. I don't want to add or take away uh, anything of what God wants from the passage. That I would have a clear idea of what God wants said through the passage. Pray for liberty during the invitation for people to respond. Whether they come to the altars or whether they don't, that's not the important thing. The important thing is that in that moment, when every head's bowed, every eye's closed as we say... They're doing business with God that in that moment, there's no distractions. Right? I mean, that, that, is a, that is a holy and important moment. And so we don't want, we want to pray people won't be fiddling with their purses. And they won't be putting on their coats. And they won't be playing and unwrapping gun wrappers and, and opening up mints. And making all of this noise to distract people. All of those things, I don't think those things necessarily keep people that want to get saved from getting saved. But if I'm not really sure... And I can use this as something to distract my mind from that rather than what the Holy Spirit is dealing with me about. That's what I'll do. So we want there to be liberty in that moment for people to respond to Jesus. Pray marriages and families will be strengthened and restored. When people get saved, it makes a difference in the whole family. So pray that would begin to happen. Pray the lost would be saved, the prodigals would be restored, captives would be set free, broken hearts would be healed, and spiritually dead 
would be raised to new life in Christ. Pray God would work in many mighty ways so everyone who's here, the lost, the saved, and everyone else, they would be changed from glory to glory. The ultimate purpose of all of it is for all of us to be like Jesus. So there'll be something in that service that would change all of us and make us a little more like Christ. Pray there would be specific deliverance from bondage to alcoholism, drug addiction, sexual addiction, and what other form of immorality is common in the lives of the people. We know our community. We know what's here, what's abounding, what is in people's lives. The people we're going to invite. We know what they're enslaved by. So pray against it. Pray specifically God would deliver them from that issue, whatever it may be. Pray God would plunder hell to populate heaven. And I would say consider fasting at least one day a week between now and Easter for the Easter service. So what I want to do now is come to the altar to pray. Those that want to or pray where you are. Um, pray just a few of the things on that list. If you already know who you plan to invite, pray for them by name today. Start right now. If you don't know, begin to pray for God to lay people on your heart and to bring people in your path. If you would, everyone that would come to the altar to pray. And when we're finished praying, we'll move on with the service.
I want to finish the service tonight by reminding us about why we go to all this effort. Why we start 40 days out praying, inviting, why we invite and pray these specific sort of things. Why we put forth this kind of effort for this one day. I mean, not just for this one day, but especially for this one day. Nothing I'm going to say tonight is it's new information. But I do want the service to end with this kind of on the forefront of our minds so that it would weigh heavily on our minds and on our hearts. Always, but especially leading up to Easter. And what I want to do is give us uh, some reasons about why this time of year and taking advantage of this, this natural flow of life is important. Why there's an urgency that we should feel about this, why it should weigh on our hearts in, in these sort of ways. Number one is every unbeliever is under the wrath of God. Jesus said, the one who believes in him is not judged. The one who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The Apostle John writing about the words of Jesus in that chapter says, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, I use the words of Jesus specifically and intentionally because so often we're taught that Jesus wouldn't have said things like this. Jesus just kind of wanted us to love each other, to be nice and be happy. As long as we did those things, everything would be okay. He would not be judging and he would not be condemning. But that Jesus really isn't the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible says things like the one who believes on him, the Jesus of the Bible, is not going to be judged. He is not condemned. But the one who does not believe on him is condemned or is judged already. So believers and disciples of Jesus, we aren't judging people or condemning people when we say you must believe on Jesus. What we're doing is stating a fact. The fact is... Every person who has not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus is at this moment under the judgment of God. Now, this is important because the picture, in, especially in, in 36, is the wrath of God. It abides on them. It remains on them. I mean, it's there at this moment. And at some point, it will fall on them. Right? If we were to use the imagery of Jonathan Edwards, we'd picture every unbeliever dangling over the fires of hell by a spiderweb thin string. The string could break at any moment, plunging them into eternal damnation. Worse yet, the string not only could break at any moment, at some point it certainly will break, plunging them into eternal condemnation, eternal damnation. And nothing that anyone can do can protect them from this judgment to come. God can at any moment call any human into judgment. God has the sovereign right and he has the righteous right to bring his judgment down upon any unbelieving soul at any time he decides it needs to be done. Now, the reason this is important is because many unbelievers are very satisfied in their lives. They're very comfortable with their morality. 
They're very happy with their lives. They feel very much like they have an okay guy, okay with the big man upstairs. And if we're not careful, we will buy into that. We will see a person like I, I was raised, the way I was raised and was taught. Unbelievers were all monsters of iniquity. Right? Every unbelieving person was just half a step away from being a serial killer. They were extraordinarily miserable in their lives. They just laid in bed all night. Oh, I'm so miserable. I hate my life. Well, so you take those two things. Morality. Satisfaction with life. And say that's what it is to be a Christian. Then you find someone who is a moral person. Satisfied in their life. And what we do is we say, oh, well, they must be a Christian. The reality is that they may not be. Many unbelievers are, are moral people. They're good moral people. They're faithful to their spouses. They love their children. They're good employees. They're happy with their life. They wake up happy every day. They're, they can point to a million little things in their life that just fill them with all kinds of happiness and joy. They don't have God. They don't believe in Jesus. They're okay with you having Jesus. It's great if that's what you... I just don't feel I need that in my life. And if you were raised kind of like I was raised, where the, the two things that identify a Christian are good morality and being satisfied with your life, then you can find somebody like this and you say, well, they must be saved because they're moral and they're happy. And the reality is morality and happiness do not save from condemnation. Morality and happiness. Now, Christians obviously should be moral and happy. But an unbeliever can be moral and happy as well. So when we know someone who may be satisfied in their life, they may be moral in their life. If they haven't repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God, it abides upon them. Now, they don't know that. And they don't believe that. But we must. We must know that's how it is no matter what. We must believe that's how it is. Not because I said so, but because Jesus said so. Because the Word of God said so. We cannot convince ourselves. Unbelieving moral people are saved because they're quote unquote good people. We cannot convince ourselves. Unbelieving, happy people are saved because they're satisfied with their lives. They are not. They are under the wrath of God. They are not okay. And we must know that. Secondly, every unbeliever must be born again. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. So the unbelievers are under the wrath of God and their need is to be born again. Nicodemus is a great picture of someone who needs this for us today. Right now, he asks about being a part of the kingdom of God, to hear Jesus say you had to be born again to be a part of the kingdom of God would have been shocking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was grow, he had grown up 
under a, a religious system that taught them just by virtue of being a Jew, he was a part of the kingdom of God. He'd been circumcised on the eighth day, all of those sorts of things. And now on top of that, he was a Pharisee. So in his mind, he was by nature a part of the kingdom of God. And even if he wasn't by nature a part of the kingdom of God, he was by his actions, had made himself a part of the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus tells him, not so. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Now, we don't typically think of in terms of the kingdom of God. Instead, we typically think of terms of going to heaven or being saved. So if Jesus were saying this to someone in our day, he might say, no one goes to heaven unless they've been born again. Or he might say, no one is saved from the wrath to come unless they are born again. Now, this truth puts other facts in this, in, into focus for us. Number one is that being religious doesn't save us. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a very religious guy. The Pharisees were an exclusive club. There were only 6,000 Pharisees at any one time. To become one, you had to take a pledge. Well, you had to be accepted into the club. Then you had to take a pledge in front of three witnesses, devoting your life to observing every detail of the scribal law. They fasted from food twice in a week, every week. They tied the smallest amount of their income. And just generally, if there was anything religious that needed to be done, they did it to the nth degree. And yet, despite all of his religion, Jesus tells Nicodemus he must be born again. Now, what's really astonishing about this and really important for us to see in this is Nicodemus is not religious in the wrong religion. Nicodemus is not a devout Righteous follower of Baal. Nicodemus is not a devout religious follower of Zeus. Nicodemus is a devout religious follower of Judaism. Based upon the Ten Commandments. God himself had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. He was involved in the right religion. But he still needed to be born again. When you talk to people. And ask them if they're saved. You'll get many different responses. I go to church. I've been baptized. I'm a member of such and such church. Well, I'm a very spiritual person. And what they're all saying, without saying it, is in my own way, I'm religious. The problem with this is religion doesn't save. It doesn't save even if it's the right religion. Someone can, can go to our church. And they can be raised in our church. And, and I could baptize them. And they could be members and tithe and give and be active. And yet if they have never repented of their sins and believed upon Jesus and been born again, they're, they're lost. Being religious doesn't save anyone, regardless of what religion someone is religious in. Another reality is morality doesn't save as a Pharisee, Nicodemus was a moral person. This was a natural outflow of his religion. He was a good husband. He was a good dad. He was a good neighbor. He helped the poor. He was trustworthy. If you went out of town, he's the guy that you would tr trust to pick up your mail. Anything you could think of that would describe a good moral person would fit Nicodemus. But despite his morality, Nicodemus was told he must be born again. Again, as I mentioned, we all know people who are good moral people. They're good neighbors, 
They're friendly, they're kind, they pay their taxes, they're good parents, faithful to their spouses, they work hard on their jobs, they're generous. But if they've not repented of their sins, and if they have not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and not been born again, they are lost. Their morality doesn't save them. And again, they won't see that. Because for many people who are like this, what they're going to say is, I, I don't I mean, I don't need Jesus to be good. I'm already good. I don't need Jesus to be moral. I'm already moral. And, and we can't change their mind. I mean, all we can do is share the gospel, pray, invite them to church. So my point isn't saying go out there and change their mind. My, my point with this is we can't believe that. We cannot believe morality equals salvation because it doesn't. We doom people if we embrace that worldly mindset. Morality doesn't equal salvation. Good people who reject Jesus will die and go to hell just as surely as a serial killer will. Someone who is active and involved in an evangelical church, who has never repented of his sins, believed in Jesus and been born again, will die and go to hell just as surely as a Muslim will. Morality, religion does not save. They must repent of their sins. They must believe in Jesus. Third reality for us is being knowledgeable of God's word doesn't save. Verse 10, Jesus is going to say Nicodemus is a teacher of the law, a respected teacher of the law. Now, to be a teacher of the law in those days had some pretty serious qualifications. One, he had to be a Pharisee. He had to go through all these schools and training. He had to memorize, from best I can tell, the first five books of the Bible. Not like I know Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I've memorized them. But like chapter and verse from in the beginning to the final words of Deuteronomy, word for word, without fail. They, they, they were the Bible scholars of the day. I mean, they, they spent their life studying and applying God's word. He knew God's word well. But despite all he knew about God's word, Nicodemus was still told by Jesus he must be born again. Many people who have been raised in church or Sunday school, maybe went to a Christian school, they have all kinds of biblical knowledge. They can name the books of the Bible in order. They know the Ten Commandments. They can answer certain doctrinal questions. Those are good things. Those are not bad things. But those things don't save in and of themselves. Every person, no matter who they are, no matter how moral they are, no matter how religious they are, or how well they know God's Word, must be born again. They must repent of their sins. They must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They must do this because only Jesus can save. Says this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's only one God and one mediator, also between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. There's only one way, there's only one God, and there's only one way to that God, and that is through Jesus Christ. God wants everyone to be saved. Come to the knowledge of the truth. But the only way anyone will be saved is through Jesus Christ. 
Again, this is something basic, something we, we know. But it's something we, we should frequently meditate on. The only way anyone will be born again and saved from the just judgment of God is by repenting of their sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. If someone were to come to me and want to be baptized and I asked them the right questions and they gave the right answers, but they had not repented of their sins and believed in Jesus Christ and I baptized them, they would be just as lost as they ever were. Getting them wet would not save them. If someone were to come to me and say, I want to join the church, and I would ask them the questions to ensure they're safe. We have a membership class we have. and Salvation is the very first one. Baptists believe in a saved membership. And what we mean is someone has to be saved so they can be a member of our church. And if they were to answer all the right questions and affirm that they were saved, we would bring them before the church, we would vote on them and make them members of the church. And that would not save them if they had not repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have good morals. Even if, even if at one point they had bad morals and they clean themselves up and they turn over a new leaf and they begin to live and act and talk and look differently. If they haven't done this, the repenting of their sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and being born again, they're not saved. Nothing but Jesus saves. Nothing but Jesus saves. This is this is key. This is why we pray for 40 days leading up to the time when more people are willing to come to church on any other day of the year. This is why we unashamedly invite people to our church. We're not saying our church is better than every other church. We're not saying we're better than those we're inviting. We're saying when you come here, here are things that will happen. People will hopefully, and I believe would, be friendly to you. You will sing songs about God and about Jesus and about salvation. And even if you don't understand them, the gospel is going to be presented over and over again through the songs that we sing. People are going to pray and cry out to God for a variety of things. And you're going to be given an opportunity to cry out to God too if they come. No matter what else happens... We're going to preach. It's going to be a Bible message. It's going to be a gospel message. Jesus is going to be the hero. Not us. Not anyone else. But Jesus. And at the end they will be given an opportunity to respond to what God's word has said to them. They will be given, hopefully, clear instructions. You need to repent. Here's what that means. You need to believe. Here's what that means. You need to live for Jesus. Here's what that means. And, and it's not saying I'm going to do it better than anybody else is going to do it. That what we're going to do is better than what anybody What we're saying is it will happen here. And it will happen here not because we're great, but because Jesus is. It will happen here because Jesus alone saves. That's why we're going to sing songs about Jesus and not songs about the world. That's why we're going to pray to Jesus and not chant or meditate. That's why I'm going to preach about Jesus rather than about something from the newspaper, something funny I thought happened this last week. Because Jesus alone saves. And we are confident of that. We believe that. We know that. And so we give 
all we have to invite people to come because that will happen here. They will be given an opportunity to meet Jesus here. They will hear about Him because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And as they hear, some will be drawn and then some will repent, some will believe, and some will be saved. We believe Jesus alone saves And so we labor and pray and invite and do all we can to bring them here so they'd have the opportunity to hear about Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to call on Jesus, and be saved by Jesus. So this is these are the reasons we do what we do leading up to Easter. And again, we know these things, but it's good to be reminded of familiar things over and over again. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a few minutes and we're going to pray where we are and ask God to drive these truths deep into our hearts. We're going to ask God to give us a a deep conviction about the truth. All people apart from Jesus are condemned. We're going to ask God to give us a fresh vision for how desperately people need Jesus. And we're going to pray for many opportunities to invite people to church so we can we can hear about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for the clarity of your word. We ask tonight, Father, drive these truths home to our heart. Lord, we know, we know all unbelievers condemned because of their rejection of Jesus. But, but drive this truth home in our hearts until our hearts ache over the reality of it. We know everyone must be born again before they can be saved. But drive that truth home in our heart until they ache over the fact that these people we know and love haven't been born again. Father, we know Jesus alone saves. And drive this truth home in our heart, Lord. So we will be bold and unapologetic in our sharing of the gospel and our inviting people to church. The greatest need anyone will ever encounter has is Jesus. And their world's hard right now, Lord. People need lots of things and have lots of hurts and aches and concerns. But, Father, if we meet those but they don't meet Jesus, they're still eternally lost. 
Let it be fresh and passionate in our minds that Jesus alone saves. And when the world might try to make us afraid of evangelizing or inviting to church, when the world might try to make us ashamed at evangelizing or inviting to church, let us counter those things with the truth. What we're doing is the greatest good we can do for any human on the face of the earth. Because their greatest need salvation. And there is only one Savior and His name is Jesus Christ. And they must repent. They must believe if they are to be saved. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. Someone went to D.L. Moody to ask him why his ministry was so effective when others were not. D.L. Moody was not educated. He was not educated in grade school. He was not educated through seminary. He was a shoe salesman that got saved and became a great evangelist for the Lord. They were in his hotel room and he took them out and overlooked a park and he asked them what they saw in the park and they told him what they saw. Whatever you'd see in the 1800s in a park on a Sunday, people walking their dog, playing frisbee, whatever. And they said, what do you see, Mr. Moody? And with tears in his eyes, the story says, he said, souls, precious souls, who will spend eternity in hell without Jesus. May God give us grace to see everyone we encounter as souls, precious souls, who will spend eternity in hell without Jesus. We're going to